gone. What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Come on. That is not paid for by them. That is paid for by the people of Detroit. You are qualified, young man. I'm not qualified for this job. Let me tell you something. You want to go right now? Okay? You want to go right now? Hey, kids. Except for John Anderson, it's your old pal, M.L. Elric, who posted something kind of mean on our Facebook page. He said, oh, what? He said this... This back and forth between ML and Sean is getting getting tired and old. And I said, what, like John Anderson? Ooh. He's also tired and old and probably doesn't look good even if you know him. Don't criticize someone who's listening. Oh. Um, is that like bad radio? Does that... I just want everyone to listen. Okay. Uh, well, to, to John Anderson, I want to say special thanks for taking the time to give us some feedback and to weigh in. We really appreciate when we get your feedback here on the Soul of Detroit. And um, and yeah, I take everything back that I just said. So sorry about that. And, and if you're watching us live on, on Facebook, uh, we appreciate it. If you're watching us on YouTube, we appreciate you subscribing to Soul of Detroit. You know, if you subscribe and hit the bell, you'll always get a notification when we go live which is always one of life's great mysteries, but you've solved it this week because here we are with Mark Fellhauer, the aforementioned Sean Windsor, and our very special guest, Free Press legend, Bill McGraw. He is the editor of the Free Press Flashback and the brains and the muscle and the sinew (laughs) and all the other stuff, the bones, the marrow, uh, the mitochondria, some of the bacteria you'll find in your small intestine that people think is bad, but you really have to have it of the Detroit Free Press Almanac. So thank you, Bacteria Bill, for being with us. I think I'm welcome, or you're welcome. Yes, and of course, Peter Gravilovich, the pride of the East Side, one of the great Denby Tars, was also involved in that endeavor. So we're 150 other people. Including me. I really. I made some very small. Oh, oh, well, that didn't oh, take wow. long. I'm the most important one. Very, very hurtful. I made some. That didn't take long. <laughs> one of my contributions was that uh, there's an intersection in Ann Arbor where one street sign says Nixon and the other one says Blewett. So when you look at it, you see Nixon Blewett. And I think you asked me to find out whether it'd be legal to be buried vertically <laughs> in Wayne County. And that's the kind of stuff you will find in the, uh, in the Free Press Almanac. I well, believe... Now I, now I know the, the answer, answer to that? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I believe it is legal, but they recommend against it because what ends up happening is as you're buried vertically, eventually things happen to your corpus, so everything kind of falls into your feet. So you end up being like this empty bag with a bunch of bones at the bottom. Mm. So... Uh, Fun fact for you kids out there, if mom or dad's getting kind of old and you've got some uh, spare room on the back 40, uh, <laughs> you know, why waste all that money on embalming? It's not legal to bury people in the backyard, though. Oh, really? No. Oh. You know, it's funny. Sounds based like you on the number, digging to do. Based on the number of people you found buried in backyards in Detroit and Highland <laughs> Park, you would think that it's absolutely legal because it seems to be a very popular way to take out uh, friends and family and people who DJ'd um, at illegal clubs near seven and crash it, but, um, but frowned upon and uh, apparently illegal. So that's the kind of great stuff we have ahead for you here on the soul of Detroit this week with Bill McGraw, where we're looking back at 1973 when Coleman young, of course, you know, he was elected mayor, the MFIC first became mayor in 1973, but did you know he had to fight to get on the ballot. That's the topic of the latest Free Press flashback that Bill did this week in the Free Press, so we're going to dive into that. 
We also want to congratulate some award winners. Uh, Christine McDonald of the Free Press was named Journalist of the Year by the Detroit Chapter of the Society of Professional Journalists. And Brianna Rice was named Young Journalist of the Year. She's with Michigan Public Radio, and, uh, and they uh, were honored last night at an awards ceremony where 300 journalists came together to find out whether they won something or whether they lost to Craig Mauger and Beth LeBlanc of the Detroit News like I did. That's the most important thing. Yeah. So How, how you did. Well, so this was all a setup for you to complain about last night. <laughs> Sean, when are you going to join me in stopping the steal? I was cheated. And it's time for America to come. Wait, 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 wait. D- just for Mr. Anderson's sake, may I say that you look particularly handsome oh, today. And uh, and I like your spirit. Since you know and, me. Uh, and it's great to be your friend. Since you know me, I won't share with you that I'm cringing on the inside. Oh, I'm sorry if I offended you. Oh, it's that easy to cure it? I thought that was almost impossible to, to do. John, I, I didn't start this, John. You're on my side now, right, John? Johnny boy, J-Bone. Andy. No, John said it was getting old, like the flannel you're wearing. Or maybe it's not flannel. Maybe it's just the screen that's uh, masking it. You are so superficial. <laughs> so superficial. And Sean, who I ran into yeah. at the Painted Lady on Saturday, wanted me to share a message to Mark. And since he oh. bought a couple drinks, I'm, I'm honor-bound to do that. He said, Chelsea sucks. Uh, they do suck this year. I want my Russian oligarch back. Said no one in Ukraine ever. I'm just talking about my fandom, my soccer oh, fandom. I got you. Chelsea gotcha. was very good under him. Abramovich? Roman Abramovich, yeah. Didn't care where the money came from. No, no, because now Americans own it and they suck, so just being a sports fan. Damn. Is that a bad, uh, is that an immoralist? Well, we, just, we were talking what, about this you, before the show, the morals of a sports fan. Blood money, as long as it wins, doesn't matter. I think you know I'm being facetious, I know you but are. I... Uh, Isn't that I the mean, theme of the Kentucky Derby? I got to say the results were a little better under my oligarch. Well, the, the Kentucky Derby, the Russians yeah, one winner, money. seven dead. Yeah, it's like I, I, if I was, you know, twenty years ago, you'd be happy if your horse won the Kentucky Derby. I think now you're happy if it makes it to the starting line. I'm utterly amazed that that is still a, a sport. Women love stupid hats. No, and not come just on, English royalty. They could find, they could wear hats. They'd find another reason to wear hats. I'm just really surprised that horse racing is a sport. I don't know. What do you think, Bill? Should it be a sport? Uh, it's kind of like boxing, right? Is that a sport? Yeah, but those people know. They can choose what's going on. The to horses can't. Uh, it's just a little it's a little weird to begin with. And I'm believe me, I'm not like a PETA person or anything. I just think it's odd that, that thing still exists. There's nothing wrong with being a PETA person. I no, think I'm just saying I'm not. I like the idea. In fact, I, I proposed this to the Pulitzer committee that if you win, you get put out to stud. And then all you do is you just, you know, you become basically the uber mate for other people who want to do good journalism instead you just get um instead you get a, a podcast pay a pay cut yeah it's <laughs> and a bell get the to other, work with sean more often i forgot it's, that was the other part of the, the pretty Pulitzer. pretty brutal there's the bell how, how could anyone ever forget that's the pulitzer bell basically yeah. well the last two the last two uh, uh cohorts to win the pulitzer prize at the free press before Lindsey green was a finalist uh, took a six and a half percent pay cut, and then the other one was wrongfully terminated. So winning the winning the Pulitzer at the Free Press <laughs> is very dangerous. It's a harbinger of terrible things to come. So I told Lindsay, "Be glad you're just a finalist because that's a lot safer, man. I mean, you do a lot, you live a lot longer that way." People have done stories. People who have won the Pulitzer don't necessarily flourish afterwards. Like the lot, so like winning the lottery. It yeah. can lead to a lot of uh, it's heartache. A curse. Well, then the, then there are the people who are like, "I got to prove it wasn't a fluke." 
you know, I got to do it again. Like David Ashenfeld, was tortured after the first pulse. He said, I got to do it again. I got to show him what I can. And he said for years after that, he was just, you know, constantly trying to reclimb that hill. Whereas I was just like, uh, just like my six and a half percent back. If we can somehow, you know, restore that to my, my paycheck. Nice to know he, he wrote for prizes. No, he he, but he knew big stories, just, which, just which catch eyeballs. Yeah. But Dave, Dave's great guy. We did used to have a lot more of that. What writing for stories, writing for prizes, or prizes for, in yeah. our business. Absolutely, we did. Oh, that's why oh. all the stories would run in December. You're like nobody at the end of the year wants to read a 17 page story. <laughs> we're Christmas shopping. We're doing Hanukkah. We're getting ready for uh, Kwanzaa and for uh, New Year's Eve. We don't want to know. About uh, cats that died uh, in Vietnam when they were trying to save orphans, you know, it's that's a bad time. To some drop people off. will say now um, some uh, places write for clickbait, right? Kind of the you know. Oh, absolutely. Thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, geez, you got to survive. I, guess I mean, so. we do, but I, I, it's not that we write for clickbait. We write for clicks. Yeah, okay. but what's the difference with uh, papers from the 1890s who were, um, you know, doing the, the, yeah. uh, sensational muck, stories yeah. and muck and muckraking? Muck penny press. That's where the cartoons came from. The yeah. yellow press. It was all yeah. give the people what they want, sell volume. Well, it's a business, and you've got to sell uh, papers and sell clicks or you know whatever get clicks mm-hmm. to survive, right? Yeah, and totally get it. The good news is that it tends to be quality journalism that does survive. So it may not be as lucrative. I mean, TMZ will not be here in 192 years. The free press, hopefully. It might. I don't know about that. It will be. <laughs> don't forget who they're owned by. Ah, uh, but I think there's I think there's stuff like that that's come and gone and uh it it you know, th- there's very few things that sustain themselves. Now there's different incarnations like the Police Gazette used to be as as uh, grisly as anything you'd see in a horror comic, but then it eventually went away, but then sometimes different versions of it come back. I just saw that Vice News, which at one time was the new future journalism, is filing for bankruptcy. BuzzFeed News, gone. You know, all these all these. And once again, sort of, it goes back to digital advertising, and that's kind of dried up recently. Yeah, it's... it's Isn't the podcast business... Uh, you yes. know, faltering somewhat. Yes, this is charity that we're doing here. <laughs> but yes, is, Bill, it is. Yeah, this is this is part of a community service uh, sentence that we were. Uh, it's a glut of the market, though, right? It's not. So there's a bubble, but there's also a, there's been a big push for all this digital advertising, and now they're realizing this return over the last ten years isn't what we quite expected. So there's a bit of a pullback in the economy. There's a lot of fear in the economy. Yeah, it think- cycles. Do you think the news and the free press would have done better financially over the years if they would have exploited more Detroit's problems, like in a sensational way? Like, Great question. You know, like they covered really very few of the homicides each year in Detroit, but what if they became more of a tabloid type of uh, paper? Well, you could argue that the TV stations do that. I mean, every, every day there's some sort of fresh tragedy. And when I was at Channel 4, right after I got there, we had... We had some consultants come in and they said, okay, we've asked you all to fill out a survey about our news. What do you think about it? And they said, overwhelmingly, you feel that there's too much crime news on our airwaves. And, and everybody's like, yep, that's, we feel that way. That's true. And then they said, and here's what your audience says. We want more. Mm-hmm. And so they said, guess what, folks? We're going to give you some more. And that's when they kind of rolled out something that I don't think they do as much in the past few years. But for 10 or 15 years, it was a very powerful message. And 
consultants said it would motivate audiences and channel four has consistently been one of the top ranked stations in many day parts, but it was, here's what you need to know to protect yourself. Here's what you need to know to protect your family. Here's something that we can tell you that will save your life. And that people were really motivated by that sort of dire messaging and the drama that comes with, you know, I'm standing. In fact, one time I was told for a, we went out, we, we report a story and they said, you know, stay out there. We want you live at 11 or whenever it was. I said, okay. And said, can you, um, can you do your live shot from uh, the front seat of a police cruiser or in front of a police cruiser with the lights on? And I said, well, I think by 11 or whenever it was, they're going to clear the scene. They said, well, can you ask them to stick around? And mm-hmm. I said, no, I'm not going to do that because what if there's a real emergency yeah. and I'm sitting in the front seat of the cruiser <laughs> and it's like, okay, all hands on deck. And I'm like, uh, we're just going to weather. Can you hang on, you know, just for just a second? But people, I mean, you know, you know, we you- get the government we want, we get the news we want. Well, to, to Bill's point, though, it, it feels to me that there's a lot more nice news out there you know six channel 62 started their tv broadcast and it really is more about like the, the way they're proposing it it's like community and i'm watching it, there seems to be a lot more positive stories and reading the papers i feel like there's a lot more positive stories as opposed to that's why i love carlos Menares so much <laughs> but i you know he's the fly in the ointment hey if it bleeds it leads in crime and then you know what you're doing taking down politicians it's like that's the kind of news I want out there. Not I don't care if there's been a, I don't know, a, a, a nice little garden planted. So you don't want to read about a plane landing? Mm-hmm. Yes. That's not news. Yeah. Planes land all the time. Every reporter in town shows up Am when I the president's plane person, arrives. Sean? But it's not because no. the president arrives. It's in case the president doesn't land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean... Or he lands with a boom. Yeah. How many, how many Hindenburg landings do you remember before that one in New Jersey? How many people said, oh, the humanity, and it looks like they brought some chocolates. Was there ever a time where they talked about making one of the two papers here a tabloid? Like uh, like the Post where it's a fold-out? Well, they had the Detroit Times till 1960, and it wasn't a tabloid. It was a broadsheet, but it had more of a tabloid mentality than the free press or the news did, even at that time. Was it? I thought that was kind of the same as the writer's paper. No, oh. no, that was the free press. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, the, so the free was, press has always the been... The Times was the Hearst paper. Okay. I can't believe you knew. You know that it went out in 1960. That's fascinating. It's amazing. Bill got fired from his paper route. How's he going to forget that? <laughs> I, got, I got fired from my reporter's job. Yeah, the, the last thing they published was his pink slip. <laughs> and it was a pink, you know, it was a colorful paper, literally. It had a um, both, I think, green and pink uh, pages. So it was uh, for finance and for different things. No, like that, for or? page one. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and if you're wondering where the Detroit Times was, if you take the people mover, Times Square was where the Detroit Times was. We had a Times Square in Detroit, and now it's a people mover stop. And I think for years a, it was a parking lot for the free well, press. Then didn't Yoko Ono plant a tree there? I know John Lennon had a tree that died, in fact, because I think you Yoko, asked me. Yoko Ono planted a tree there that later died. Yeah, so so when Bill was was the assistant Metro editor at the Free Press and you covered City Hall, you'd occasionally get phone calls or messages from Bill saying something like, whatever happened to John Lennon's tree? I'm like, I don't know what the hell happened to John Lennon's tree, but these are the kind of things he would think about because not only did he know what was going on in Detroit, but the things that, you know, like, I always think the RoboCop statue is such a Bill McGraw story, you know, because you're going to write about what the mayor's doing, what he should have been doing, what people want, but you're also going to say, like, where's the statue? If they if they put the RoboCop statue out yet, I mean, because Bill loved 
stories like that. He just has this active mind and he's fascinated by just all kinds of crazy stuff. But he's also a very hard-nosed reporter. And and I promise we're going to talk about that right after we give a shout out to David Hall of Hall Financial, who is prepared to help you get your new house, save you money, refinance. We're going to tell you all about how David Hall can help you. And if you're looking long-term, Luke Nowacki, you know, I know it's a long-term thing, but call him now. You have to plan for the future today. Luke Nowacki and his team at Pinnacle Wealth Strategies will set you up for success in your golden years. And if you don't call Luke, they may end up turning into copper years or whatever they make pennies out of. With zinc years, maybe, I'm not sure. And of course, the Cadu Cafe, the Pride of the East Side, where they have their kitchens open till midnight every night except Sunday. Live music indoors and outdoors now because the weather is great. We're going to talk about who's coming up this week at the Cadu Cafe in uh, in our new Wave Music segment where we continue our campaign to get the Sisters of Mercy to uh, to come and, and talk to us. But um, But that's all coming up after Bill tells us how Mr. Coleman Young, State Senator Coleman Young, got on the path to glory, overcoming some obstacles that were put in his way. Uh, sincerely, legitimately, or was this part of Whitey's last stand to try and hold on to power in Detroit? No, it was actually, uh, people thought it was the law that if you were a uh, city... For real, this wasn't like some made-up shit, like, no. we'll get him this way. No, because he tried to run in 69. Okay. So 69 was when Roman Gribbs faced off against Richard Austin. So it was a white candidate and a black candidate. Although Richard Austin was a much different person, than his personality was different than Colin Young. He was a CPA. He didn't have a radical background, and he was very kind of low-key, really. And, of course, later on, he became Michigan's Secretary of State. The beloved and soft-spoken, ever-present Secretary of State exactly. for many decades. Right. And so Young, uh, before I think Austin was in, Young uh, filed to run, but they wouldn't accept his petitions. And then when Austin got in, he didn't take it further in 69. He figured Detroit should have a black mayor. We have a black candidate. I'm going to support him. So four years later, when Gribbs decided not to run for a second term, Young quickly um, got in line to get his petitions in and they wouldn't take them. So he appealed or went to court, and then eventually the Michigan Supreme Court ruled in his favor unanimously that it was a misinterpretation of the law that legislators could not run for local offices while they were sitting. Tell people who Coleman Young's campaign manager was. Hmm. Uh, Well, his campaign manager was um, Millinder, Robert Millinder. But Ed Bell's campaign manager oh, was Dennis Archer. So okay. So when I read your story, I wasn't sure if it was Bell or if it was Coleman Young because Archer did end up running Coleman's campaign in seventy-seven. Later, in, 77. in seventy-seven. Okay. Yes. So so Archer did not argue for Young before the Supreme Court. No. Who, who, it, who took that case for him? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not sure. Um, Archer was only thirty-one years old then. Right. And um, but he had been an activist lawyer. He had uh, worked on behalf of the Black Panthers. You know. I mean, I think. His association with Ed Bell, who was, of all things, a Republican, a black Republican, you know, people, one of the uh, critiques of Archer over the years by his critics was that he was a Republican. And I think that's where it started. He was not a Republican. He did work for the Black Panthers, but he, he didn't have the background that Coleman Young had. Right, and, and he worked with the Black Panthers with one of our guests who we had uh, a couple of weeks ago, if folks want to check out that episode. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you. When when did the mayoral election become, um, what do they say, nonpartisan, or you don't have a party? Like kind of in 1918. 
1918. So it's been a long time. Yeah, when the when they redid the uh, charter, when Detroit used to have like 50 city council people or whatever, and uh, it was really crooked then. You know, imagine 50 people to bribe. How much has changed? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so they redid it so much in that charter, and uh, that's when they came up with the nine at-large uh, people and, um, you know, strong mayor government and um, nonpartisan. Nonpartisan was a trend, I believe, across the U.S. at the time. Good government type stuff. So okay. it's been a nonpartisan election all that time? It has. And, of course, in recent years, everybody's a Democrat. Um, you well, know, some people would argue that Duggan isn't, but <laughs> I've heard some people say that. Yeah, Duggan will tell you he's the only Democrat in his family. Really? I knew his father was certainly yeah. not. What, is, what does that yeah. mean? Reagan put his dad on the federal bench, made him a judge, and, um, and I think the rest of his family, uh, all his brothers are Republicans. Mm. So. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing that they don't have to declare a party? Um, I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean... Um, you know, I've never really uh, covered uh, a mayoral election where there was a partisan aspect to it. So mm. I don't know. Uh, you know, in other cities, um, I think Philadelphia, it's definitely uh, um, partisan. I believe New York is partisan, but now is Chicago? I, I don't know. Um, um, I, you know, I mean, everybody's a Democrat, so I, 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 I don't York, know if it is partisan or not. But Bloomberg and uh, Giuliani won in recent years, and they were Republicans. Sure. Well, in Chicago, whether you're a Democrat or not, people know where you're coming from because typically your kid runs for the state house, and so you know that you know Michael Madigan's daughter ran for attorney general or senate as a Democrat. So uh, you know now Madigan is in the state house too, but they run the machines. So the the aldermen, you know, you you know whether someone's got a D or an R next to them, whether or not it shows up on the ballot. But but officially, I don't know. I, I think they may Who was the last Republican governor, uh, mayor in Detroit? I mean, Cobo was definitely Republican. I don't know about Miriani. And after that, there's certainly been Kavanaugh and Gribbs were not uh, Republicans. So um, I don't know what it would mean if uh, tr you tried to have a partisan election today when everybody's a Democrat, really. Oh, I know what it would mean. A Republican would be killed. I mean, uh, the and, and the, you know, people have argued for this. Uh, Brian Dickerson argued for this at the Free Press before he retired that really if you win 50% in the primary, there should be no runoff. And I and he thought that would increase voter turnout in the primary because people would be more motivated. And I said, that is absolutely and utterly wrong. If you did that, turnout in the primary is always going to be terrible because of the time of the year that it's held. But what's going to end up happening is you're going to pick your winner in August. And when people go in November, when they expect to vote for bigger issues, there's going to be nobody to vote for. It's going to be over by then. I mean, that's how people like like Brian Banks get elected to the state house because they know if they can win the Democratic primary in August, they can get two or 3,000 people to elect them to serve 50 or 75,000 people. I mean, it's if, if, you, if, if Detroit elections were partisan elections, the races would be over in the summer. And when the greatest number of people came out to vote for things like governor and president and senator, you'd, you'd have virtually nobody to vote for in Detroit because the races would be done. Well, um, John Nichols in 73 did not get 50% of the vote, but he got like 33, but he finished first. And didn't... Um um, when Kilpatrick ran the first time, he didn't finish first, did he? Or the he did, and that's when people started to think, "Oh my God, this guy might really, might really." What be about the, the guy. second time? Did he finish first the second time in the primary? 
Um, no, I think that Freeman Hendricks, Freeman Hendricks finished first, finally, right? Which is why pre everybody thought Freeman Hendricks would be the guy. Right. And the problem was, so did Freeman Hendricks, and so he didn't run quite as hard as he could have. But in 73, if there had been a partisan election, I presume Nichols would have run as a Republican. Uh, Young would have got 51% of the Democratic votes, and then... Well, how, how much of that 73 election was that versus black and white? Well, the, the primary wasn't. The primary was kind of a mixed bag of candidates. There were five main, 19 people ran, including Donna Lobsinger. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were five main candidates, and two of them were African Americans and three were white. And all were well known except for John Moak, who's still alive. And, uh, but he, he made quite a splash and got endorsed by the free press. He was a, really a, um, a nobody in the sense of um, he didn't have a reputation, but he was a lawyer. He was active on the east side in the Jefferson Chalmers neighborhood, really smart guy, teaching then at Wayne State Law School, where he still teaches. And um, he, he had no money, so he walked around Detroit. Uh, he said he told me, I you know, talked to him before I wrote my story, 800 miles he thinks he put on. And he went through two uh, pairs of shoes. So I was surprised it was only two pairs of shoes. Yeah. I, I, I rotated shoes, and I walked a much smaller territory because we were in a district as opposed to, what is Detroit, 136 square miles or whatever? 37, whatever, yeah. yeah. It's, it's That's interesting that you related that to yourself. <laughs> was surprising. See, Sean, when, really needles them. when people do things in their lives, they're able to speak about it. Now, I, I get it. You could, you're, you, if we start talking you're, about... You're trying to relate to people. If we start talking great. about being late and objectifying people and hating Carlos, I expect you to chime in on that because there's your life experience brought to bear. I love Carlos. <laughs> So back to the question. Let's run back, back to, to Mark's question. Well, when, when you talk oh, about Nichols versus um, Coleman, you know, Coleman Young runs on getting rid of stress and reforming police, and Nichols was, as you wrote, the police commissioner. So is it black versus white, or was it anti-police versus well, pro-police? I think it was both. Um, the fact that one man was white, the other one was black, in a city that was roughly 50% black and white at a time of tremendous ro uh, racial polarization in Detroit. I mean... You know, that's six uh, years removed from the riot, less than six years removed. Exactly. Blockbusting going on. I was going to say there's turmoil in neighborhoods that were changing from white to black very rapidly. Um, I looked at the census stats, and it was really amazing to see virtually everything east of City Airport and west of Greenfield was almost totally white. So whites lived in all white neighborhoods. That meant, of course, that many blacks lived in all black neighborhoods, too. Whites were free to go where they wanted, whereas black citizens weren't. But so the uh, city, both geographically and spiritually in every way, was very racially polarized. And so, um, so that was there. And the fact that a fairly, you know, Young had joined the establishment by the time he ran for mayor, but he really had a radical background. I mean, if he wasn't a member of the Communist Party, he was as close as you could get to it in the 30s, you know. So that was wow. 40 years earlier. And he had really been involved in some radical activity. But he was, if you're a state senator, you're not a radical. And he was a, you know, a really good state senator. But the fact that he was a black man was important in the fact that he was facing off against a white man, even though they were, the, the, the campaign was not uh, characterized by racial insults or anything like that. But it was all about the police, and the police was widely perceived in the black community as being a racist outfit. So you wrote it, that they had ten debates. Yeah, amazingly, it's ten unbelievable debates. that right. they had that many. Yeah, race never came up. 
Um, that you remember or know or? Well, it, no, it didn't come up in the sense that um, there was like racial name calling, at least among the two candidates. I, I wrote what uh, yeah. the people wrote in Tuebor, the police department or the um, DPOA uh, newspaper. But um, both um, Nichols and Young both committed to not further polarizing the city. And, um, and by all accounts, in my memory, I, I voted in that election. I think it was the first election I voted in. And um, I don't remember you know, any kind of real racial antagonism. But again, it was right on the next level. You know? I mean, it, it just couldn't get away from the issues were racially uh, implicated and the two people being white and black was, you know, so it was, it was racial without being overtly Racial, and I yet guess. the free press and the news, or specifically the free press, both accused Young of running a divisive campaign, right? Er, that was early on. That was like right after Young first announced he was running, and he said he was going to fire uh, Nichols, and he called uh, stress and execution, execution squad, and he said it was time for a black mayor. You know, those aren't real radical things to say, but uh, it really offended the all-white uh, newspapers, uh, but one of the things that, that fascinated me about this story, Bill, and, and it, it feels like something that could never happen today, is that both candidates, either explicitly or through a gentleman's agreement, said they were not going to amp up the racial tensions in the city. And, and I think Sean mentioned that he loved this part of your story, because I know Sean read it, it was that, that Nichols said, I would rather lose than be responsible for tearing this city apart. Can you see any politician no, today saying no, something like never. that? Nichols really went out of his way to, he said that kind of thing several, several times. And Young, despite his reputation today, 50 years later, uh, talked about unity constantly, about unity, about black and white. His whole inaugural speech when he finally got elected was all about unity until he told criminals to get out of Detroit. But um, so both people were... Um, there was a really, there was a, um, a huge understanding of how polarized the city was. And, you know, there was all sorts, and, you know, crime was such an, uh, such a, um, uh, an issue. And, you know, the newspaper on the east side, Northeast Detroiter, constantly made it a, a black-white issue. So there were all sorts of racial antagonisms going on. The, the candidates didn't need to be adding to it to... Uh, they didn't. They lessened, I suppose, the atmosphere a little bit, but it was really there. So you're you're right, ML. Though if it was today, it would be like, hey, if you don't vote for me, this oh my is, this God. is what's I mean, going to happen. Look We're going to be further divided. We, we're still talking about the 2020 election. I mean, how ridiculous! No, I just is mean that? any any election but, though, at any level, yeah. But so was this was this agreement something that was brokered among you know Millinder and no whoever, no no? The, I think they both understood. saw it was in their best interest to do that, and I also think. Um, you know, Nichols had a, a lot that... Um, and he had to quit. Now, Young could stay as a state senator, but Nichols got fired, right, by well, Gribbs? Right, but that was not because of any law, but they just, the, everybody thought it wasn't good for um, the police, then the commissioner. He was a civilian. He was like the Defense Department secretary. Um, he's in charge of the police department. He's a lifelong cop, too. And the number one issue, really, in the campaign is crime and police. He should have. He should be stepping aside, and dur he got by w during the primary. But finally, Gribbs, who was very close to Nichols, said, "You just got to quit," and he wouldn't, so he fired him. Wow. And and did Gribbs endorse in that race? I don't believe he did. Okay, but no. this is one of the things that I think you know people who don't know history. It, it's so easy to to buy into what we think happened. If you didn't read Bill's piece. 
in the free press, and we'll post a link on our website, ML Solar Detroit. You would think that 1973 was like riot part two, you know, black and white at each other's throats, the candidates, you know, the way people have demonized Coleman Young as a, as a, a race politician, everything like that. In 73, these guys were not only civil, not only thinking of the good of the city, but they, you know, for opponents seemed to get along well enough that they could have 10 joint appearances where they would discuss the issues. I mean, that seems... I mean, it, it feels like you're writing fiction. Well, um, you know, they attacked each other for their positions. Young certainly attacked Nichols. Nick, you know, Nichols was, um, um, he had a weakness in the sense that he'd only been a cop, whereas Young had a broad kind of experience, both with a lot of menial jobs over the years when he was blacklisted, but also he had had a lot of leadership positions in, in his radical leader. days. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, and then he quickly, even as one of, I think, only two uh, black people in the uh, Michigan Senate, he quickly rose to be the floor leader, and he was appointed a uh, National uh, Democratic Committee man. I think he was, if not the first African-American, one of the first. So he, he had a, a huge amount of experience, and he played on that for Nichols, that he was this one-trick pony who didn't really know much beyond law and order. And presumably wasn't very good at it because there were 694 homicides. Well, see, that's another thing. And as I wrote, um, Young quickly put Nichols on the defensive and said, you know, your department is not only killing black young black men in, un, in a, illegal ways, um, it's incompetent and it's corrupt. There were 12 cops who were indicted for heroin dealing along with some other people. Not, not all of them got convicted, but still there was clearly something wrong in the police department, really badly wrong. And Nichols was, uh, that was his whole life. And he was married to a cop too. So, I mean, he was a cop through and through. A police woman. A police woman. She was no longer a police woman, I don't think, when they married, but that's where they, I don't know if they met, but she was a police woman. Yes. Those must have been as rare as black cops back then. Um, you know, no, I don't or think police they were matron, that. Or police matron, were they? Well, no, they weren't, you know, they were full-fledged cops, and I think they carried a gun, but they did things that were defined as women's work back then. Um, there was a time when they finally were, you know, put in patrol cars, and I'm not sure if that was under Young or before him, but uh, it was within at least my lifetime you know you know this is totally off topic but i wonder if you looked at the demographics of the police department because coleman young did so much to integrate the police department i wonder if you would find a better black and white balance in the police department today than you would male female because i do see a lot of female police officers but not nearly as many as there are black cops or white cops or you see a lot of um of uh Latino cops in Detroit now, and and a lot of uh, a lot of um, um, uh, East Asian police too, South Asian police mm -hmm. as well. But you know, I'm still surprised how many white cops there are in Detroit, and white firefighters. You know, I mean, the when um, black politicians have run the city, they've been much fairer to the white community as far as jobs go than white politicians were to the black community. Oh, you know, and that that is a, a through line in history. I grew up in a predominantly white community. If there was only one black person in a store, you could tell how uncomfortable they are. I now live in a predominantly black community. When I'm the only white person in the store, I never feel uncomfortable. Everybody's very welcoming. There's none of this sort of like, oh, what's this dude doing here? It's more, like, hey, what's up, man? It, it's just, it, it, it's, it's so, it, it drives me crazy and it shames the hell out of me how different it is when 
the roles are reversed, how much more grace there is when, when whitey is in the minority, you know? I mean, we get treated way better than black folks, than white folks have traditionally treated black folks. Well, that's one thing Young had to um, be on the defensive about when he was elected. And, and even when he ran, people were saying, white people, that if he got elected, he was going to just, uh, you know, everybody who was hired would be black and he was going to do everything to screw over the whites. And that's sort of the reputation he has, unfortunately, in a lot of communities today. But he didn't do that, for one thing. And he also, both in his campaign and his really, as if you look at his whole life, he worked with white people. He um, was always talking about unity. He rejected black separatism. And uh, right before he ran for office in 72, there was this big black convention in Gary, Indiana, run by... Um, the Jacksons, uh, I think it was. Yeah, right. Um, Leroy, I, I don't know Leroy's, he, you know, his new name, but Leroy Jones, the poet from Newark, was you know, a pretty militant guy who was one of the people in charge. And there was a movement, kind of a, a separatist thing going on, and Young led all the Michigan delegates out. He walked out against a lot of um, uh, backlash at the time. But he said you know, that there is no future in black people going alone in America when we're only 12, 13% of the population, especially. So he was always about unity. His whole inaugural speech was all about unity until he, you know, he had to talk about crime. Because, Hit eight mile. Well, anybody, you know, he didn't tell it like the, one of the first comments after right. my story on Sunday was someone who said, Coleman Young told white people to leave Detroit. He never said such a thing. He told well, why criminals is, Why is so Detroit? much of his, uh, the narrative of his legacy, um, you know, racial, right? Well, like, because, because now, it's, that's it's Detroit versus the suburbs. Well, that's that's a really good question because that's very true. An underlying think, threat, right, Bill? Well, no, I well, think. I mean, aside from it, because if he's always talking about unity, he did at times, you know, at least Detroit versus the suburbs. I would so. argue real quickly, not to not to take on a tangent, but uh, the same thing happened to Obama when he got inaugurated in two thousand eight. He's uh, it was unity, 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 and it didn't take long but, for but, white folks but, to start saying he's dividing us. But the it's makeup, the same dynamic. It's but the been makeup there. of Coleman Young's constituents. Constituents are a lot different than what America was. You know what? What was? Because you said you looked at the census, wasn't it about fifty-fifty when he was in elected? Seven, by seventy-four, seventy-three, it, it was yeah. roughly fifty-fifty. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think you know, Young also was a. He really stood up for the black community when he was a, a mayor. So he's, you know, he talked a lot about racism more than any other mayor. And in fact, he was really. If you think about it, the first person in any sort of position of power, certainly in Southeast Michigan, who ever addressed racism. Today, stuff he said, you know, post-George Floyd and everything is like taken for granted almost. But he was challenging like the legislature, certainly the police department, the Tigers, a lot of organizations that have had demonstrated racist type behavior that he called them out on it and i think a lot of white people especially older white people 50 years ago did not like that message um i think that's still true i think you're well you're right yeah but it's uh it's more accepted at certain levels among whites i think than than it was certainly in 73 no for sure we, we no it's not it's not completely the same but there's there's still some of that dynamic it's mm -hmm. there's but, a, it has to do with comfort and power and and young also when it was in his uh, best interest, he could um, lean on um, black solidarity, let's say. I think just like a lot of other ethnic mayors did, like Irish mayors and Italian mayors, to get what he wanted. 
And, you know, he did call people Uncle Toms who ran against him. So, I mean, he kind of used that kind of, um, you know, uh, black solidarity card. I don't think it was any worse than, again, a lot of other politicians have done who weren't black. But so, I mean, he's a complex character and he was in yeah. office for 20 years. And, um, you know, to reduce him, though, as a corrupt racist, which a lot of people do, including people who commented in the free press on Sunday. I was going to ask well, you about he, those com- more about those comments. What? Well, they were, you know, typical. I mean, you know, you can start a, you can have a story about maple trees on Belle Isle and sooner or later Coleman Young's going to come up and, and it's going to become a racial brawl. And that's kind of what happened in the, um, I mean, things are a little bit more genteel because you got to register your names or whatever, right? So it's not as bad as it used to be. But um, one of the first comments, again, was somebody who said he told white people to leave Detroit. Now somebody came along and said, no, he didn't. So, you know. Well, one of the last things I think people remember from him, too, is it's almost full circle, was Malice Green. And he really, didn't he attack the police while Budson had never... He called it a murder really quickly. And, yeah. Um, it, well, it was. But, I um, mean, he wasn't as judicious as maybe some other mayors might have So, been. in the end, did he accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish in 73? Uniting the city? Yeah. Well... Of course not. No, I don't think he or, did. Or even reforming the police to a certain extent. Well... I mean, he got rid of stress. Yeah. Um, I. You know, that's a good... It's a good debate. He did change the police department's complexion, certainly, and he and he allowed a lot of he got a lot of women on the force. He made it more diverse and much more representative of Detroit's uh, you know population. Um, but as the Free Press investigation in what uh, early two thousand showed, before the um, uh, consent decree and before the federal government came in, the black-run police department was abusing citizens' rights and killing citizens just like the white-run police department had done. So, Well, and when you look at that recent killing, um, God, I'm drawing a blank whether it was in Tennessee or somewhere. It was, it was all black yeah. cops who right. killed the young Memphis. black guy. Right. I mean, it, it, it really, to some extent, becomes it's a, a blue thing. Issue. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But, and it becomes an us-and-them thing, and it becomes a, you know, we're outnumbered and outgunned, and, you're, you know, who's in charge and that sort of thing. And well, it, the, the power dynamic... <laughs> With police and the citizens is is very very. It, it kind of knows no color, but some of it comes down to the training too. Is are you being trained to be a uh, a soldier? Are you trained to be a protector? And the police training is evolving, but you also have you know cops outnumbered, uh, overworked, under equipped. Totally underappreciated. Underpaid. You know, and, and that's getting better. It you is know? getting better, but still. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Still after, not where it needs to be. When, not if you're trying to get the best and brightest. When the Black Lives Matter uh, movement arose and there was talk of, you know, changing police departments and lessening police departments, as a reporter in Detroit, especially covering politics a lot, I never met anyone who said, let's have fewer police and let's have fewer powers for the police. Given the way crime has been an issue in yeah. Detroit for 60 years, people always want a fair but a robust police department. Oh, and, it, yeah, and uh, if if Sean's dozing off, I'm going to sneak this in. But <laughs> No, but you're going to talk about your campaign. <laughs> well, because I actually talk to real people, but... But when I was running for police, uh, for city council, obviously we're just in the, the summer after the Black Lives Matter movement really became big. Not one person wanted fewer police. And even though there was an acknowledgement that maybe there were times when the police did not perform uh, at their best, everybody I talked to 
wanted more police. Exactly. And and as a white candidate talking about wanting more and better police, I thought this was going to be a difficult discussion I would have on some doorsteps. No, every buddy wanted it and my opponent who was you know a big defund the police person when those police raises came through i think she supported them well one thing one thing young did for sure is he cured the police department of what it was doing before he became mayor in other words when they started having black supervisors and more black patrol officers um they weren't allowed to um use racial slurs in everyday contact with citizens, for starters, you know, which, which really is on the record as what happened for many years um, wh- after um, black Detroiters became a large part of the city, the way the white police department reacted to them. So yeah, and stress young, and young big stopped, four got disbanded. Young stopped that. He stopped yeah. the, the real big abuses. And I think that, you know, after he was in office for uh, several years, the police department was a very different department than it had been. So the other thing that you may know about Bill McGraw is before the Almanac came out there, there was the Little Red Book, Coleman <laughs> Young's quote book, because Bill covered Coleman Young for many years. B- Bill, tell us some of your favorite stories. About, and by the way, that book is still available at fine bookstores. Uh, throughout it's it's still, uh, Wayne State owns it now, and yeah. it's still, it's their, one of their bestsellers, if not the best. I think the Kwame Sutra's right up there, no, too. No, no, you, no. Make, you make some not money off close. that, I hope. <laughs> I did. Nobody got rich, but we did. I mean, it sold It sold very, very well because people bought it who loved Coleman Young. People bought it who gave it to their dads who hated Coleman Young. He was a great stocking stuffer. It worked out well. No, I, st- I still reference that book to uh, some of the quotes to folks is, and that you've talked about Coleman that Young, I've read. Coleman Young liked it. He uh, signed it for his staff for <laughs> Christmas presents and stuff. So. Well, it showed oh, wait, he, he was funny. He, well, he know? was very witty. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, when you compare him to Dennis Archer, his successor, who is a fine man, and he and I did a, a very good job under rough circumstances for eight years in Detroit, but they're so different. You know, Archer's not a funny guy. He never talked about race, which is fine. That's his prerogative. But he was just so different than Young. But Young was both, um, you know, tough and funny at the same time. And profane. So after the Kwame Sutra came out, we created the Dave Bing quote book. And (laughs) it was a piece of eight and a half by 11 paper. We folded it in half. And when you open it up, there was nothing in it because Dave Bing was, you know, the least quotable guy ever. And Archer was kind of the same thing. He was very thoughtful. Yes. He would give you very, answers very that you had to guy. you had right. to unravel because he thought like a jurist. I mean, he was a Supreme Court justice, right. so he weighed his words and and he did have some verbal tics where he had some of the same phrases he liked to use, like you know, for those of us who are long in the tooth, you may remember back in the day and stuff like that. And the like, got to do my due big, diligence. Yes, yeah, due diligence yeah. and the like were two of his verbal crutches. <laughs> But well, Coleman Young. Well, here's, here's, some the, here's my favorite. Here's How about my some fa- highlights, including the one in Japan? Well, let's. Here's the first one that was my favorite. Uh, so, Pull Town was this, you know, one of the most, uh, you know, contentious issues ever to come along in the last 50 years in Detroit. Building the Pull Town Auto Plant because they, Coleman Young, who who suffered himself, his father's tailor shop was destroyed in Black Bottom. Black Bottom, right. Now, the family had moved out of Black Bottom by the time they destroyed it in 1950, but his dad lost his tailor shop. So then, uh, what, uh, 30 years later, Coleman Young authorized the tearing down of a neighborhood for an auto plant. And, you know, that's one of those controversial things that 
people still hold against him. And I'm sure people said, well, he went after the white folks, but it was the white folks who wanted it torn down at General Motors. Well, true. And, and, you know, I mean, talk about a power play. It was the archdiocese, the UAW, GM, and the city against those people. But it was a a multi-ethnic neighborhood. And a lot of the people who weren't the old Polish people wanted to go and wanted to take the money. But especially the old white Polish people who were there are the ones that fought it. So anyways, but it was hugely controversial, and Ralph Nader was involved. and um, So Young's out there for some ceremony, whether it was groundbreaking or whatever, and afterwards there's a usual scrum around him, and there's a bunch of reporters asking questions, the usual questions. Do you think it'll be started on time, Mr. Mayor, and how much money is it going to cost? Finally, this young, small uh, female reporter says, aren't you just a tool of the ruling class? And he oh, looked at her and that said— That must have really got him. He, he looked at her and said— what the hell paper do you represent? And she goes, the revolutionary worker. He says, why don't you just revolutionize, revolutionize your, your ass, ass on out of here? <laughs> <laughs> I've always loved that one. He's, he's got kind of a Trumpism quality to him where he'll swear, he'll say whatever he wants. He called people, called people names. Um, the Japan one. The I Japan don't know that he one. called. Okay, well, well, he called Reagan prune face. But, but well, before we right, get to called, that, Bill, he, he would called, you say that that Young's personality evolved? Because the guy that we started talking about in 1973 seems to me to be very different from the guy who served his last term in 1993. Well, you know, being in office in an office where you have a mansion and drivers for 20 years. That, that wasn't good. I don't think, you know, even people who love Coleman Young, who worked for him for many years, think he was in office for four, if not eight years too long. And so I think that does a lot to you. Plus, he got older and he got sicker. He had a really bad problem with his lungs his whole life, really. He was in Herman Kiefer Hospital as a kid with lung problems. So um, he got older. And that would got, have been the poor hospital, right? The county hospital or the city hospital? Um, no, it was for contagious diseases. Okay. But I mean, I mean it everybody was... went there. No, everybody went there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Um, so anyways, I think just the fact that he was in office for 20 years uh, spoils you or whatever. It just isn't good for democracy, really, for somebody to be in office for 20 years. So yeah, he was very different. In 73, he was, what, 54? So he wasn't a young man. But he was a very hip guy. Feels pretty young to me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, he was a, a much hipper guy than Nichols was. I kind of made that point in the story. With you know? The crew cut. You yeah, mentioned Nichols, that. Nichols looked like a Marine, you know, and Young was a very well dressed guy, and uh, he talked in kind of a hip way, and he just was a more with it person. And he had a his female companion at the time was a very, um, uh, you know. Uh, outstanding type person you're very cultured and everything so he was just a different person than Nichols was and um, so yeah he was very different and you know we got to say he got in some trouble at the end of his uh, reign when uh, he got in bed with uh, Ken Weiner yeah, security contracts. You know, I've talked to FBI agents who were in Detroit during his reign and who worked, uh, you know, on young cases, and they said they never found any indication that he was corrupt. Uh, but he did cut some corners, and he did, you know, get in bed with a con man, which was, uh, you know, his, you know, undoing as far as his reputation went in well, back in ninety. You know, a lot of now. Federal- now I've heard there are former federal prosecutors who went into criminal defense that went to Washington to the justice department and wanted to bring charges against Coleman young and Jimmy Carter's head of the justice department said, Coleman young got us Michigan. 
you are not going to do anything against Coleman Young. So I've heard actually the opposite from. But did were they going? Did they find uh, he left office in what seventy nine? Right. Um, what's the uh, well, eighty? He would have been right. Okay, so Reagan got January elected twenty first of eighty. They definitely went. They definitely tried to make him an unindicted co-conspirator in the oh Vista. Uh, Vista now the uh, the sludge hauling case is that Vista? Yeah, I think yeah. Vista okay. was a sludge hauling. Right. Okay. So, but the judge would the judge wouldn't allow it. Okay. And they wiretapped, and they definitely were oh, looking they tried. at art, which I think could also change some of your personality and mentality when you feel like you're being persecuted and the city's becoming blacker, so you don't have to kind of straddle the line as much. You can play to the audience a little more. But In his re-election campaigns after the first one, or the first one wasn't a re-election, but after his first campaign, he never really had a problem. You know, I mean, uh, Tom Barrow ran against him twice at the end and uh, narrowed the gap a little bit. uh, Um, uh, What was at Brown's first name? Uh, Whatever. Brown was uh, was second. City Council. Bill Brown. No, um, boy. Um, Anyway, we got to get to Japan, or Sean's Sean's gonna be mad at me. (laughs) Well, um, so there's. uh, Are you talking about the MF uh, quote? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are we allowed to say that on the air? Yes, yes. That's my favorite quote of his. Sean, do you want to say it? Uh, Do you want? No, you go. You go ahead. You go ahead. Well. He was on a, a business trip or, you know, a trip over to Japan to talk about cars and stuff, you know, Detroit. And um, he was at some one of the, you know, many ceremonial dinners they do. And they were doing all the stuff they do for visiting VIPs and their this and that. And they had some sort of sword. And then they started talking about the Japanese language. And um, the guy said, <laughs> I know uh, this one. you know, uh, we have a word. We have words in Japanese that mean different things on the different tones you use. And, uh, but it's the same said, word, like one word meaning word a lot means of means different things, yes. 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 And uh, he says, oh, yeah, we have a word like that in English, too. Motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. That's so true. <laughs> yeah, no, an amazing historical figure. My favorite quote in the book. <laughs> Misunderstood, uh, misremembered, but free press flashback, the purpose of that is not only to entertain, but to also kind of set the record straight. And 50 years ago, Coleman Young won the right to run for mayor, served for 20 years. Now his son is on city council. And his... Um, one of his ex-girlfriends, his, yes. not the one who was with him when he was first elected, is chief of staff for uh, for his son, which is an interesting uh, story that you may also find at the free press, which we always encourage you to subscribe to it's like thirty-three cents a month, and it supports great journalism's like Bill's and, uh, how, how, and like Sean. You know, speaking of that story, oh, not thank Carlos's, you, Mike. Carlos's. No, thank you, Mike. Mike, Mike, just can I ask you real quickly? Do you remember Bill's? My my favorite story Bill ever wrote when we were working together. And this is probably twenty years ago when it was when he wrote about the trees growing on top of the the buildings downtown because oh. back then downtown was uh, a lot more abandoned, right? Oh no, but the idea today, no, yeah. we're not talking about weeds. But literal trees with on the top of trunks. 20, 25, 30-story buildings with big trunks. Do you remember that story, Mike? I do. In fact, I just saw that the Wurlitzer building, I think, is being converted to something. And that was one of the that had a particularly, uh, we call them the ghetto palms, those ones with the little tiny leaves on them that grow anywhere. I mean, the one that had the most trees, it had forests literally on it, was the uh, Pickford Shelby. I mean, oh, it took yeah. them a couple of days to carve out all the trees that were up there. A and they forest. Had, and just like the Packard plant, they had like <laughs> trunks that were, uh, you know, you could almost barely put your arms around them. Yeah. The Packard plant had a boat like on the fourth <laughs> level. It's like, who put all, the boat All over there? the place. Yeah. I mean, there was, a, there was an old dump truck that got pushed off one of the upper floors by some <laughs> hipsters and recorded and it went viral. But 
you know, so the Pickford Shelby for years, the only thing that was in there was the anchor bar. Right. And, and this is a massive, massive place. And my grandpa worked downtown right after the war. And I'd tell him, we're going to the anchor bar. I said, where's that? It's in the fort. say, that was a flea bag hotel when I worked downtown. So horrible building, just disaster right across from the free presses, uh, relocated home in the back of the Detroit news. And there was a reporter at the, at the Detroit news, RJ King, when I first moved back in 99, breathlessly wrote on a daily basis in the Detroit News about all these wonderful things are going to happen. This is going to be transformed. And it never happened. It took me like a year to realize, oh my God, this guy's just rewriting press releases. So Jennifer Dixon, great colleague of ours, award winner last night as well, and 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 justly so, writes that the Pickfort Shelby is going to be restored. I was like, oh, Jennifer's Jennifer fell for it. It's ne- and now it's the Double Tree. It's a friggin' beautiful place downtown. I never thought it was going to come back, and it did have it. Had a it, it. I mean, there may be a garden up there now, but it was intentionally planted. You <laughs> well, know, I mean? that that's was- how I got the idea for the story. I was walking down Fort Street one day, and something caught my attention. You know, there were hawks and stuff around there, and I think I was watching a hawk. And I looked up and I saw a tree growing on top, you know, leaves from a tree on top of the Pickford Shelby. And I, that's what gave me the idea to pursue it. And yeah. boy, believe me, there were uh, uh, trees on lots of buildings in Detroit, including the uh, Hurlbut Gate at Waterworks Park. There was oh. a tree growing on top of that. And uh, there was a tree growing out of a stop sign on uh, Winchester Street up in northeast Detroit. Uh, you know, if you start looking, when a city starts being abandoned, you can find a lot of stuff like that. It hints of the apocalyptic, right? And, well, and our, our taste for, for movies that imagine what if this city is left alone for 500 years what would it what would it look like well there'd be trees covering all the brick and it's it's the end of planet of the apes right (laughs) you blew it you blew it you crazy fools no it's uh you know to me one of the amazing things about watching both well the detroit's had both good and bad over the last 25 30 years but when the abandonment takes root in a neighborhood the way Mother Nature comes back so quickly was really mind-blowing. It's really something. Yeah. It's yeah. fast. It and, really is fast. And Bill says this as a man who has gone down every single street. Take that walk in John Moke. How many another, shoes did you go another through? Another great story. I used a free press car, so oh, you um, did. I can't complain. So I also used a car when I ran for city council. I don't know if Sean had mentioned that earlier, but uh, I went through two sets of tires. But did John tell you what kind of shoes he was wearing? Because I'm sure he was wearing dress shoes, which yeah, must have sure. just must have killed his feet. I mean, uh, how could you walk? He didn't complain about it. He actually seems to have a very um, uh, positive recollection of his campaign because, again, he did well. Nobody expected he was going to be elected, of course, nor did he, I'm sure. But um, he made a very positive impression on people, and he's had a very positive career in Detroit, you know, teaching law students and being an activist. And he's very knowledgeable about land use and all those kind of important things that, you know, only some people understand. Now, he and I serve on the infrastructure committee at St. Ambrose, the church that Sean doesn't think I go to. <laughs> before, before we get Check to Check an the, earlier episode. No, no, no. You're Apologies a, a, to John a Anderson. beautiful, beautiful human being. I hope you like that, John Anderson. Don't judge me on my appearances. Bill, I met your soul. Even though we're friends. Bill, before we get to our sponsors or wherever, or to some other story for Mike, why are you wearing a Montreal Canadiens cap? You're a Red Wings person. What's happening? Or is that a fashion statement? No, well, it's somewhat of a fashion statement, but it's also, um, I mean, I am a Red Wing fan. Or do you hate America? I, <laughs> can you love America you can, and Canada? You can love Canada and not hate America. 
it was a gift, uh, but I'm also a Montreal Canadiens are my second favorite team. When you like and Montreal, I lived, I lived in Montreal. I remember how much months. you like Montreal. Well, I lived in Montreal when I was 18 years old for a few months and uh, saw Guy Lafleur when he was a rookie, uh -huh. and uh, so uh, and that's when the Canadians, of course, that was 1970. Um, the Canadians were uh, on their on the upswing, going towards their four Stanley Cups. Flying Frenchman. Yeah, and uh, so uh, and it's a great city and. Um, you know, Quebec's an interesting place. If you can't get to France, uh, Quebec's the next best thing. So would this be called Lam of Detroit now that we're into? Lam. Isn't that the soul? Lam. Oh, Lam. Very good. Lam, of Lam de Detroit. Lam de Are you shaking your head, Mark? Yeah. Merci Are you beaucoup, your... uh, Guillaume uh, Mavran. Of course I am. Are you putting your uh, face in les your palm? Avec nous, uh, uh, ici, uh, Lam de Detroit. What a show off. It's, uh, and of course, Sean Windsor hates can. He's only named after... South Detroit, but uh, <laughs> more, more self-loathing from Sean Windsor. It's what you've come to expect here. No, I don't hate Canada. Along with great deals from David anything. Hall. And, oh, sorry. No, you love Canada. You love everybody. I try. Except stories about crooks and stuff like that. Uh, how, long, how long has the Free Press been doing the flashback thing? Because it's... Two years. It's, it's really it's good. It's awesome. Two years. Yeah. It's awesome. The Thank cult, you. The cult story was good, um, which was just an old story. You know, story the rerun. cult story is interesting, so let me quickly do a resume of that. that if it's uh, okay with Sean. It, it, he, already, he gave me the heads oh, up. You, know, you guys prearranged uh, this? Yeah, he kicked me. I know so, we had some extensive show prep, and Sean got This was early. a story. So part of the uh, Free Press flashback, people write stories about the past, but we also take stories from the past Free Press and, and run them. And so this was a story from, I think, the 1927 or 28 paper. And there was a family of uh, six people axe murdered on the east side. And the father was a cult leader of some sort. And he had weird mummies and dummies in his basement. And But the detail, we had to edit it because oh. modern sensibilities could not handle. I mean, dad really? was decapitated and they put his head next to his body. He sat in a chair. They had him in a chair with his head next to the chair. But the description of the other people being killed was horrible. And so it's, it's interesting how things change over the wow, Police Gazette, yeah, I, I right? I would have thought it would have been the other way around. No, 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 no. No, no we were a lot closer things, to medieval times things, back in yes, 1920. And things are so much are more genteel in the paper these yeah. days. Even oh. in the last 25 years, things have gotten much more genteel. Well, we, don't, we won't even run mugshots for a lot of people now. And now there's talk about we're going to purge things from our, our archives for people because they got in trouble 30 years ago and they deserve a blah, blah, blah. blah. I mean, whatever. We but. used to see caskets coming out of planes and all sorts of stuff, right? We don't see it anymore. Oh, that's a good, yeah, that's true. Well, there, there was a fierce debate at the Free Press over whether to show bodies of the students who were killed at Michigan State. And in the end, they opted not to. But even the student paper in East Lansing did show that scene. So and the I New mean, York Times shows. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. The New York Times used to be accused of being the gray lady and being very genteel, but they're um, in the last well, in the Middle East twenty five years. They have their sometimes their photos are very jarring, and their whole point is trying to show people reality. Yeah, yeah. right. Which, of course, the more know, reality I, we get, the more numb we become to it. So, and ultimately, do we achieve our objectives? I, I understand those people. sensibilities, but. I mean the internet, right? They're out there if people want to yeah. see them anyway well, in a in a less controlled fashion. So why not? Well, that's goes like what we talked about at the beginning of the show about how the free press and news really never um, delved into the tabloid side of covering Detroit, and that there is a sensibility among newspapers, which I'm not necessarily against, but it's very things are more genteel and even language. 
the language you oh, could get the away. stuff you must cut out of those old columns well, about the Negro over on well, West Street and I mean oh, holy crap that's one thing but cuss words in the 70s and 80s were more prevalent in the paper than they are today really oh definitely definitely huh. there's been a I mean there was a time at the free press maybe uh, just Brian early Flanagan's 2000s. stuff no, in the early 2000s late 90s where I think you had to like get an editor or the managing editor's uh, approval of putting like ass in the paper or something you know yeah so it's what? that's become they really clamped down on toilet talk or whatever. which is interesting the opposites happen in broadcasting or not news but television right you would never hear even ass on a sitcom in the. In That's because of the whole public airwaves. Well, right, exactly. Didn't so sleep well, together. they didn't sleep in news. the same bed. I mean, right? Archie, Archie Bunker should have been cussing no, up a but, storm, right? Well, but I mean, it's would. free, right? You have to pay for the newspaper. You have to pay for cable. But the airwaves, the public airwaves, right, are right. free. So. It's ridiculous. Did you notice how Bill transitioned from free press flashback to solar Detroit flashback? We said earlier in the show. <laughs> I mean, good. this guy, he's just, it's just... Oh, he's a pro. He's just do got you, these tools. Do, do you have to change, like, other vernacular? Like, I mean, a, a story from the, the 20s, is, I mean, are the words like, hey, you're really Cracker Jack. I mean, do you change that? Or do uh, no, you, no, <laughs> because that's that? part of the spirit yeah. of the times and everything. And uh, But we've had interesting discussions with my editor um, about some of the things that need to be changed. Um, um, you know... <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> huh. Yeah, I think there's a lot of words that were acceptable even 10 years ago that are not acceptable. I can't imagine what you're finding 100 years ago. I mean, just oh, the well, terms for the races for the women. Free press. You don't want to talk yeah. about the free press from 150 years ago. You mean the pro-slavery no, free press? Yeah, yeah. right. Sure. Yeah. right. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, Oh, uh, sorry. Bill Liebold is checking in on, on Facebook. Ernie Brown. Ernie That's Brown him. was Ernie the Brown. city council yeah. president who ran. Yeah. Thank man. you, Bill. So, yeah, Bill McGraw, great to have you. Um, we'd like to have you back in another hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll be talking about Mike Elric being elected mayor of Detroit. You never know, but he will have gone through. You know, I did through, run for city he council. He will have gone through four <laughs> pairs did of I, shoes. Did I mention that? <laughs> Not just two pairs of shoes. He'll go through four pairs of shoes. But that's just because when I run. services to the city he loves. I'll run on my hands and feet because I'll get down on all fours for the people of Detroit. It, it, did, it, it, May I just make one last quick observation? I feel like I got no, I guess you will make one last quick observation. <laughs> you. you don't have to ask. And introduce it. <laughs> well, I like when Mike said, did you notice how Bill brought that brought the beginning of the show back? But I, what I noticed, what it, he didn't say, this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the show. He he said, this goes back to what we were talking to the end of the show, or the beginning of the show. The I-we distinction. So thank you, Bill. It's it's not one we make around here a lot, but I, I, I really appreciated that. Thank you, Sean. See, My friend, here's the here's the problem. When Sean says "we," he means the royal "we," which really means "I." So he's playing possum. Oh, that's a little projection right there. I mean, but I, that's okay that you do that. That's fine. Is that what we think? Are we projecting? You are. Are we? Oh, John, John, I'm sorry, John. Mike is a lovely human being. <laughs> you know who's a beautiful human being? Who's and that? He golf's left-handed. Oh, I must be David Hall. Hey, there you go. Right? Scratch. No handicap. As either, we were saying earlier in the show, the as we were saying earlier, actually, I was the only one who said it, but I want to give us all credit that he can save you a lot of money. Yeah, and the spring buying season is here, so home inventory is on the rise. <laughs> he can save all of us money. Every and, single one of us. Uh, rates have leveled off. They're the lowest they've been in months, believe it or not. So if you think, I believe it. It's true. So if you think it might be the right time to buy, the first thing you need to do is call Hall Financial. They have a ton of great programs right now. They can even save you money off your uh, rate, 
help with down payment assistance. They have a 1% down program that can uh, save you up to $4,000 in forgivable down payment assistance. There's a lot of stuff they can do. It doesn't take very long to call them. Maybe you want to take equity out, lots of stuff. So 866-CALL-HALL is the phone number, 866-CALL-HALL. Or you can go to uh, the website, mlsoladetroit.com, and click on the little link to get started with Hall Financial. Because when you call David Hall, he'll save you a shitload of money. I know you're paying attention. I was. I was. I was. That sounds like a cue for uh, Luke Nowacki. Uh, Hey, (laughs) it's always a good time to talk about Luke. If you have questions about your future financial goals or if you're wondering uh, how you're going to be able to reach those goals, call our buddy Luke Nowacki, 248-663-4748. You got to get on this right now. I don't know why people wait so long to see what their money can do for them and ways to grow it, but give Luke a call. He'll check it all out. Um, he'll help you out with those programs too. 529s, uh, 401ks. Come on, Sean, throw some numbers out. What other money things do you not know about? Everything. There you go. We'll call Luke. He'll help you out. Two four derivatives, annuities. Derivatives. Two four eight six six three. I'm not sure that that Luke will put you in derivatives, but or annuities, but he 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 knows the right way. Well, but you can ask him about it. You, you can, but I think it's probably at this point a very Roth good to, account? to ignore. Okay, Sean brings it back to Roth. There we go. Yeah, Roth is good. Roth IRA. By the way, you interrupted the phone number of the uh, spot. Well, I didn't want people to think that Luke is getting them involved in some dicey propositions. This is a man Cougarans. who will steer your show. <laughs> you can ask him what a Cougarand is, right? When you call Luke, he'll make it all about you. And you got to call him at 248-663. Mark made it funny. I love it. Did we not just talk about interrupting the phone number? <laughs> what's the phone number, Sean? You go. No, what's the phone number? It's got eight, seven numbers, eight numbers, if you want one. What? What if you want one? Maybe you don't need Do you one anymore. Do not know how to count? Okay, fine. Ten yeah. if you want the area code. 248. Just waiting to see if anybody else interrupts it. Bill, do you want to interrupt it? 248. 248- 663-4748. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Royal Alliance Associates Inc. Member FINRAS.TC. Royal Alliance Associates Inc. is separately owned and other entities and or marketing names, products, or services referenced here are independent of Royal Alliance Associates Inc. Oh man, the geeks have inherited the earth. Did I do that? What a dork. Does him wanting to play with us again mean that he's turning into a geek? Or we're turning into cool guys? This feels like the Robert Kraft version of Geek of the Week because we have a happy ending, and we don't get that very <laughs> A Robert often. Kraft happy ending? Uh, well, I, I, maybe a little more high-minded, but it is a happy ending. Last week, we had our Geck of the Week because there was a guy, and you didn't know it at the time, there was a guy named uh, Maniac, or at least that's what we were calling him because that's what it said on his T-shirt, and he threw a chair through the front oh, window yeah. at DeMongo Speakeasy, one of the more convivial gathering places in uh, in our fair city. And i i described uh, I described Larry in a term that uh, that Bill was known for throwing around the newsroom every once in a while. Boulevardier. Is it not fair to say that Larry DeMongo is a true Boulevardier? Definitely. Yeah. Indeed. So. We, we, you know, we went kind of hard at this guy who who brought some heartache to uh, a place that has welcomed a lot of people. But why are you this looking at me? Week, I, I, just because of the usage of that word. Okay. This week it's we not have like Kanye changed his name again. Breaking news from Cafe Domingo Speakeasy. What? The Geck father and son 
met Larry at Lafayette Coney Island to apologize and deliver a cashier's check for all expenses to repair our window. All is well. Thank you, Larry and the Geck family for sharing a terrific outcome with the world. So last week, last week, the young Geck the Younger was our geek. This week, in honor of stepping up, fulfilling his obligation to make things right, we are proud to name him our Geck of the Week. I think you're really ruining the spirit of Geek of the Week. What's I appreciate the, the update, What's the spirit though? of the Geek of the Week? Mike gets to judge people? Uh, yes, exactly. That's the whole point. Okay, in that case, Ron DeSantis is about to sign legislation in Florida that would exempt everybody from seeing his travel expenses and the amount of money he spends to travel around the country and who's coming to visit him. This is a change mansion. in yes. the law. This is a way to protect his presidential fortunes. There's that spirit. This is not a Republican issue. This is not a Democratic issue. This is an openness issue. And if we have somebody who wants to be president who thinks they can put themselves above the law, who thinks they don't have to answer to the people, who thinks nobody should know what they're doing when they're out there trying to influence us, that is why... Gek the Younger is our Gek of the Week because he did something nice. DeSantis, Meatball Ron. See you again. There's an all-night party in room 7609. And you can dance together all night if you've got the time. Every time I try and rise above, they just they just drag me down. I think that's why my mom was afraid to come back this week. She said, uh, "Sean was so mean to you when yeah, she was here." She said, "Is uh, is that foul mouth sailor Sean Windsor going to be there?" <laughs> she called him Tourette Sean. If if Tourette syndrome was about saying mean and wrong things, and I said, "You know, I think." I think he's been getting some help, and she said, I don't think there's enough help in the world. And I said, well, I mean, I think he may have been touched by a higher power. And she said, I, I think only maybe grim death can end that abomination. I said, well, maybe next year. And she Ab said... Abomination. She said, abomination. <laughs> You know, my mom really likes the Cashew Cafe. He's got so much <laughs> they, they keep it, up hostility towards me. It's, they, keep uh, it, they keep it clean. Oh, um, I thought we were pals. It's uh, abomination. It's uh, yeah. It's, it's she said bad guy. And I said, Mom, you got to give him a chance. She said, No, no, no. That John Anderson, that dude is so wrong. Head. He said, Son, <laughs> son, you, you really, as usual, have made me proud and have really, really risen above the crowd to uh, to shine a light on uh, on iniquity. And I said, Mother, dear, thank you. Um, is that the name of the song? No, no. But this is something I often think about when I think about my dear mother because it's about a temple and it's a temple that's full of what I have from my mother and all mothers it's a temple Sean Sean do you know what kind of temple it is? of love it's a temple of love
so the Temple of Love in Room 7609 is brought to you by the Kaju Cafe, where it's all-you-can-eat mussels in an open jam every Monday, karaoke every Wednesday. On Thursday, you can see Woodford Station, presented by the Detroit Blues Society. Friday, The Problem, Regal and Samsora. Saturday, Righteous Deluxe. And on Sunday, Nikki T and the Snake Charmers. We're going to have Eddie Colburn Jazz Project featuring Rodney Rich. And then uh, then there's going to be a special outside show, The Baked Shrimp. I have no idea what that is, especially since so many people on these sides seem like they're getting baked no matter what size they are. But if you want to know what's going on at the Kaju Cafe, go to kajucafe.com. That's C-A-D-I-E-U-X-C-A-F-E. .com. They're the pride of the East Side. Great food, great music, great times. So check them out. Um, you got all the names right. Congratulations. Well done. Yeah, I'm glad that Eric's Grobel's Blues Fun thing, that guy's killing me for, although I, it is a, a good Oh, time. it's a time for beat feedback, Mark? No, 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 no. no. We, we have to talk a little bit about <laughs> no, Mike. No, he, he, held a, he, he was held, holding it in my he hand. Was, but yeah. He was holding it as up. We just don't, being, I'm just being prepared. No, so, the, the song was whatever. What's next? <laughs> so... Because I know Sean appreciates diversity and finer things. Did you notice anything about the Temple of Love, Sean? I did not like that song at all. You you did not like the ethereal voice of the amazing Ofrahaza. No, it sounded like the B fifty twos with a bunch of you know cockles in their mouth. Yeah, I didn't like it either. But yeah. What? Yeah. So the Sisters of Mercy, often mistaken as a goth band, Andrew Eldridge. Issues the term goth. In oh, fact, yeah, yeah, slow down even more in your he description. He <laughs> is so ungoth that his real name is Andy Taylor, but he changed it so he would not be mistaken for the guitar player uh, from Duran Duran. And in fact, the influences of Sisters of Mercy include Roxy Music, the Psychedelic Furs, David Bowie, and of course, you know, some some of the other heavier metal stuff. But they have a sense of irony that you don't see a lot in in goth. Uh, some of the covers that the Sisters of Mercies have done include Jolene, the Dolly Parton song, Hot Chocolates, Emma, and ABBA. They do a version of Gimme, 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 a fantastic band with an amazing backstory that I'm hoping we will have Andrew Eldritch on to tell us about himself before he appears at the Fillmore on June 5th. I'm going. If you need tickets... Let me know because I got a couple extra, but I would love to have him on. And so this month, the charm campaign to coax Andrew Eldridge to come on to our show to talk about the Sisters of Mercy and their amazing story continues with what I think was one of their most, how do I want to say it? One of their most uplifting songs and one of their first hits, The Temple of Love, which I have not met any reasonable person who doesn't like it, but now I know two. Well, I'm not saying that two. you guys so don't which, it's okay. So which did you like more or less, Mark? What's the that? song or the description afterwards? <laughs> the song was shorter. <laughs> so, Sean. It's just a fact. Sean, but can we play Magnet and Steel next week? Because Sean, as, as, that's a description of Mike and myself. As, that, that's where, where we're right. When it gets right down to it. He's the steel, I guess, and I'm the magnet, or vice versa, whatever you want to say. I was Let's, thinking, I was thinking, mighty ship and barnacle, but yeah, and I'm the barnacle, and steel, okay. and I'm the barnacle. So maybe let's, you, let's maybe, play that next week. Should have played the eight minute version. Of maybe it, you're so. like a refrigerator <laughs> magnet, one of those ones that somebody buys Barely because sticks. They think it's clever. But after a while, they're like, oh, I got to throw that away. But it, it does hold stick. up my yeah. my garbage pickup schedule. So other people, Ofrahaza has performed with Sean. 
Eric B. and Rakim. <sighs> who, who is she? She is an Israeli songbird who was the youngest in a large family, born in. I very... don't need her whole bio. I just wondered who she was. Yeah, you said it. You did it. Good job. She died of AIDS. It was very scary. What really? Yeah, and it was. It was one of the uh, when it was reported in Israel, people felt like it was an invasion of her privacy. But but the in, the news outlet that reported it felt that it was part of her story and would help raise awareness that the uh, that the virus was could strike anybody and became very very controversial she died way too young hmm. but uh yeah. hmm. she had a song a voice like an angel and was uh was featured in many different genres do angels music. actually sing and by the way this is all you need to know about this segment our our guest esteemed guest bill mcgraw has been looking around checking out the memorabilia in the studio <laughs> But I'm listening. But, but I'm listening. Oh, you sure you are. It was very fascinating. I learned about this as Ofra Haza. I learned, now I found out who she is, and now that she's dead. Cue the Max Pro Cop music. Are you okay, back. over there. Forgive them, Ofra. They know now not what they do. Um. <laughs> yeah. So we have some donors we want to thank this week. In fact. I believe we received perhaps our biggest donation either ever, or at least tied for one of our largest donations ever, from friend of the show, outstanding journalist. I'm only going to describe her as Peg because I don't want everybody else to hit her up for dough. Peg, thank you very much for your friendship, your generosity, and your outstanding work. Thank you, Peg. That's fantastic. Also an award-winning journalist. And Frank who had kind of been denying us uh, some sustenance for a long time, checks in because he's hoping to get one of those sweet-ass Soul of Detroit keychains, and he will. It, it's a successful campaign. If you are interested in getting any of our swag, send us a little dough. Let us know what you're interested in. I'll find it in the inventory, and we'll hook you up. Um, and if you would like a copy of the Kwame Sutra, just send us a donation with your address, and we'll be happy to send you a signed copy. The book inspired by Bill McGraw's Little Red Book, the quotations of Coleman A. Young. So uh, so thank you very much for your generosity. It helps support this show. And if you would like to give, it is so easy. It's not so easy that Sean can remember how to do it, but Mark knows it like the back of his hand. MLSolarDetroit.com, little donate button. Pretty pretty simple. Did you set up the uh, other one yet? That Because that one takes you to PayPal. Did you set up the... Uh, nice. Well, actually, uh, Mark, I was going to set it up, but I thought... It's always about me. Maybe it should be a we thing. <laughs> I Why don't you what, delegate it to Sean? I wondered when that would come back around. Yeah. That's, uh, Sean, will you set up the Venmo? Sure. Speaking of the back of the hey, hand. No, you won't. What are you talking about? Sure. And, of course, we appreciate your feedback. We love it when you write yeah, to us at mlsoulofdetroit at gmail. Yeah, right after you nominate a song for Room 7609. <laughs> where I just did. Magnet and Steel. Oh, no. Really? Aren't those the two people who got Kwame out of prison? Or is that Diamond and Silk? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. Whatever. Um, I'll, Olivia writes, says, Soul of Detroit. So Duggan promised to grow Detroit and reverse brain drain, but the 2020 census said he did neither. He shamelessly said there was a racist census conspiracy against Detroit led by Trump's administration. Lawsuits, threats, press conferences, in the end, the Biden administration said they were maybe off by 1,400 people, tops. Ooh. Not the over 50,000, as Duggan ludicrously claimed. 
His own kids don't live in Detroit, so why would he pretend to be surprised everyone else has moved away too? And even more Detroit has moved away since COVID. Can we stop this Detroit white savior nonsense? All Duggan's done is rearrange deck chairs and swing billions to billionaires. He is just a political hack, as Jones Day lawyers once called him. Oh, wow. We don't end on the accent. Nice. Um, What's your feedback? It's hard to disagree with some of the stuff in there. Well, when, when, and this is something that Duggan is very sensitive to. When he came into office, he said the best way to judge his success would be whether Detroit's population increased. Now, he has since said, no, no, no. Mm. I didn't say if it increased to see if people are moving back to Detroit. Now, I, I don't have his original quote there, but I remember asking him about it. He's always like, no, 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 no. That's not what I said. I said, are people moving back to Detroit? They are moving back to Detroit. And there's no question about that, but that's brought on a whole new debate that is very contentious in Detroit and very divisive, which is, yes, people are moving back to Detroit, but are they the people we want? Are they just rich white people who are coming and taking things? Are they gentrifying Detroit? Are they Nepo babies? Are they blah, 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 blah? Is Detroit open to everybody? Is the prosperity being shared? That's a debate that we won't be able to get through today. But uh, but Olivia is kind of striking at that. And I'm surprised, frankly, that um, that Duggan didn't win in his, in his census appeal. Because, Bill, you remember Coleman Young always challenging the census numbers and actually getting the Census Bureau to concede that there were more Detroiters than they'd initially said. I think he won once anyways, and he may have won more than once, although the city every challenges the census every 10 years, and sometimes they follow through, the city that is, sometimes they don't get it together. I think about, it would have been uh, 2010 or maybe 2000, they said, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, and they never even really filed an appeal. That was Bing. Okay, and, that would have been his minions. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Kilpatrick challenged the census, and I believe he prevailed in his challenge. And I think they have a good point. I think there's clearly undercounting going on. But um, oh yeah, and, and I mean, and and the Trump Census Bureau did not send as many enumerators. They got a late start. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, there were all sorts of legal fights about who could be considered, you know, uh, white. And I mean, there was a big the the census really did get a late start in 2020. However, I remember pressing Duggan on this, and he would not say what he thought Detroit's population was, which I thought was really shifty because Duggan knows where to find numbers. He's a data guy. Right. And if there's anybody who would have a pretty good idea what the number is, it was Duggan. And he could draw upon things like water usage and water company, uh, water department customers, cable customers how many people are subscribed to cable the power company how much utility how many customers there are how many post people office live in households. yeah there's lots of things that you could corral to come up with a number and he never would share mm. that number which makes me wonder whether his number was a little closer to the census bureau's number than he would like to admit i can't say that's the truth i don't know that's the truth but i think it's strange that he would never cop to that number although clearly it must be a public record now if he submitted it to the census bureau so you know, we're talking about the 73 election. In the census in 70, there were still over 800,000 white people in Detroit. But that was down almost 800,000 from 1950 when there was 1.5 million. When I moved back in 99 and the preliminary census came out and it said 250,000 white people had moved out from, 1980, uh, from 1990 to 2000, I just remember thinking there were 250,000 <laughs> white people here a, a year ago. I mean, it was crazy. 
And that's that's a soul of Detroit flashback well, brought to us by by Bill McGraw. I'm glad Bill's here for uh, for this feedback because last week, um, as Sean was critiquing every piece of clothing that I was wearing, you were critiquing my shirt. I wasn't critiquing it, which was, was it? a Detroit shirt that said "Do It in Detroit," and I was surprised that you guys had never heard of "Do It in Detroit." And Joe emailed and said, I do remember the Do It Detroit campaign. I'm still using the glasses that I kept from my great aunt, even though I'm living in Minneapolis now. Bill, do you remember? I do remember it. That was that was another Coleman Young adventure, I believe, right? And it was a big battle between him and some religious leaders. Yeah, because they thought of it was the, and, uh, bad and connotations. And yeah, and, uh, right. in Vegas, right? I think well, it's, now, a great, it's a great story. No, no, no. I, you're sure it was fine. I was just saying, where's your soul of Detroit? Today you're repping Michigan. Yeah. What's wrong with that? What are you going to rep my school in Detroit? I don't know yeah. when you get off my back about it. I don't remember that <laughs> slogan, but I, I've often offered to do it in Detroit. And Bill's I rarely... got the Sid Vicious shirt on, Mike. Oh, nice. Oh, the sun. Another great tabloid. Um, Mark, I just forwarded you a yeah, picture, picture of, of the, the glasses. Detroit glasses. Yeah, yeah. Not, not not spectacles, but um, you know, pint glasses. Yes, well, th- that's cool. That's Drinking, uh, the... drinking vessels. That's one that you get some feedback on that. Uh, you want me to read mine, Michael? That's very condescending, but... <laughs> oh, that's not condescending. It's nice that somebody noticed the little thing that Mark did, that little insignificant uh, little... I know. I'm glad Joe set that. Tittle-tattle. Cool. I like those glasses, too. Sponsored by Amico. Oh, were they? Yeah, that's the logo on the other side of doing oh, Detroit shit. Amico. So oh, had to, get, had to get it from the gas station. Nice. Remember when they used to give green stamps and you could get cool stuff? Sean, are you going to read your feedback or are you oh, keeping sorry. us here all day? No, no. Mike is... Uh... <laughs> I was waiting for Mike to finish. Bill, this is the part of the show where Sean complains about how long it is, but then makes it even longer. How was I doing that? All right. By asking that okay, this is to Mike. Good Cyrus, lo- take... Oh, <laughs> what? No, you oh, can sorry, say that. Sean's you can say still that. here. You can say that in 30 seconds. This is to Mike. Good luck with your effort fight for an elevated newsroom. Please tell your colleague, Bill McGraw, that I, and I'm sure others, enjoyed his article on Coleman in the 1973 mayoral race. Well-researched, well-written. Yeah. There we go. Thank you. Are I they agree. referring to my column or Bill's column? I no, wasn't Bill's clear to me. Mile. Oh, that was Bill's sure? column, yeah. yeah they, mentioned, they mentioned me first. We so they all must... agree. Oh, well, this. They didn't have time to read yours. It was too long. There's three free press columnists here. One of them is great. <laughs> You're speaking about yourself, of course. I'm not. I'm, letting, I'm going to let people make up their own minds, but. It's not Carlos. I'll just I think you're you. all wonderful. Oh, my God. Um, so, it's not Carlos. What? You're such a... Huh? So I'm that? channeling Sean. What's going Sean on? and I are fighting the same wavelength. So, <laughs> so Sean, um, on this podcast in which so. you've been tethered to uh, to Carlos in the same way that, uh, that someone's tethered to a nuclear bomb that's about to go off and infect the entire world, what are you guys talking about? I'm not sure. He's been uh, he's been out. <laughs> what a great prep. Cyrus, take us out. He's been out for a while. Cyrus, where are you, Cyrus? You know what? Last, need. La- no, Carl's has been gone. Last Cyrus. last week we had Kirk Cy on. Baby. Our sports editor was great. Oh my god! Yeah, that, that definitely filled like uh, who's in the room? Okay, we're desperate. <laughs> uh, actually, it was that's, really that's good. That's what Sean called. We talked about why from. we cover what we cover and uh, and the decisions that go into Michigan, Michigan State coverage, all that sort of stuff. So and that's fun. available the blue now. Wall. That's out there now. Okay. Anything else you want to add? No, that's it. We're All done. Right. I mean, I'm done. Thank you, Bill, for uh, coming in. Appreciate Bill, it. Thank be, you, Bill. Be, but before we go. Oh, no. Before we go. Don't do it. Bill, just briefly tell us about the man who shoots Cyrus in the Warriors, East Side Catholic boy made good in Hollywood, who we are I hoping double to double dated him. with him to the senior prom. Oh. You guys 
you guys went to the uh, which which senior prom would it have been? Bishop Gallagher. Bishop Gallagher. Yes. Okay. Uh, Pat Kelly is he's known on the east side. David Patrick Kelly as he's known on Broadway, and he's had a um, really amazing career both in film and Broadway and off uh, not so much Broadway but off Broadway. Very successful New York actor. So he was the um, one of the leads in the Warriors. And he was the guy who, when they were, uh, what was the name of the other gang? I can't remember. But uh, they were searching a bunch for of them. They were searching for the warriors. And Pat was in the beat up old hearse with the bottles clicking them together, yeah. saying, warriors, "Warriors, come out and play." Hey. <laughs> and Bill, cool. did you know? And his brother, by the way, was John Kelly, the late John Kelly, who was a longtime state senator on the East Side and a real activist for the Far East Side. And his cousin. Ed Murphy right. worked on my city council campaign. Cyrus, take us out! Cyrus! Can you Before dig I went out, they shoot! Can you dig it? 